The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. What are the other key things that you do to actually pursue that vision that, that you just articulated now? Yeah, so our goal, of course, is to reach millions of women. And we know that we need to connect to them where they are in different ways. So we do that primarily through digital and through experiences. Digital, you can find us our website, chilisafrica.org, social media, newsletters, YouTube, right? How do we just tell interesting stories and share information and advice? So there's content from experts. So every single week, we're doing a Facebook live chat or Instagram Q&A or a Twitter chat or a webinar where you can speak directly to experts all across the globe to ask them your questions on important topics. So my guest today is a from Chile's Africa. Chile's Africa is one of those interesting companies that you cannot but hear something about them if you're interacting with the African ecosystem. <laughs> I first got to know you when I came to Nigeria, I think two years ago, and I was speaking at your event. And the narrative of Chile's Africa struck me. You are trying to change the story of African women. Most of the time, when you talk about African women in entrepreneurship, it's always micro businesses, micro enterprise, micro lending. Women were just trying to make sustenance but you're trying to weave the African women into the African growth stories and that African women can build billion dollar businesses. They can lead multinational businesses and they can be at the top of their career. They can be the boss. And that's what Chile's Africa is doing, right? So it's a social enterprise, but a business that is helping women to be part of the African growth story. So Efwa, welcome to Building the Future. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here today. So let's start with what led you to what you are doing now. I realized that you were working in the communication team for Michelle Obama in the White House. Actually, let's start from that. How <laughs> interesting was that? Yes, it was a really great opportunity. So I actually studied political science in university and worked on political campaigns, thought I was going to go to law school, all these things. So I had the opportunity to apply to work at the White House. And of course, everybody puts the first lady as their first this is 2010. So she's cool. She's fun. She's like your big sister. And then thankfully I was selected and it was a great learning experience. The most important thing I actually learned was about the importance of choices that you make in terms of how you present your brand and the issues and the issues that you're going to focus on. And I remember one quote was from one of my managers said that anything you do here could end up on the front page of the New York Times. So let's make sure that it, you know, quality and it reflects what the work that we're trying to do. And that's actually something that I take with our team now. And I know they probably hate it, but I'm so anal about every single thing. If there are mistakes in emails, if things aren't aligned correctly, because I think that every time you put something out there, people are making judgments or decisions on who you are as a person, as a brand, as the story that you're trying to tell. So that was a really great learning opportunity. Because it reflects on you. So every single typo in an email is a bit of a reflection on something about you. Absolutely. Attention to detail, how important you think that message is, whatever it is it might be. So that was really important. And then I also liked the fact that she wasn't everywhere doing everything, right? She decided that these were the issues that were important to me because of her background, because of her expertise and where she thought she could add value. And that is what she focused on. And of course, you'll receive criticism, but having that focus allowed her to be very successful. And I happened to be there during the launch of Let's Move and some of her her military family campaigns. And it was great to see that precision and that focus in terms of execution. Right. So your experience with uh, Michelle Obama in the White House, how impactful was that in shaping you to see women leading and doing quality 
stuff. How impactful was that experience for you and in shaping what you're doing now? I'll be honest, I don't think there is a thread that goes through all the different things that I've done so far in my career. I just like to do things that are cool and interesting. And then thankfully later on down the line, then they come out and I'm like, oh, wow, that was a great learning tool. Now I can implement it and apply it to my life. But back then it was just a great opportunity to be a part of something bigger than myself and something where I could add value. And it was a nice close because I stopped working in politics after that. So it was a nice close to the whole political part of my career. But I think I've always been interested in supporting women in some capacity. My first job out of college was for an organization that would help women run for office. And the first candidate I worked for was actually 26 years old and I was 21 years old. So what was she running for? She was running for state representatives. So like your local house of assembly type role. uh, Two and a half hours south of Chicago. So she's running for Illinois House. Yes. Illinois House of Representatives, Johan Gordon. She was so young. It was her first time running for office. She was running against someone much older than her, someone who had 30 years of experience and so and so and so and so. And she just wanted to help her community and she ended up winning. She won. Yeah, she won. So that was very exciting. And, you know, she's still in office. What are you doing for her in in that election? You know, there's only two of us working on the campaign. So (laughs) So it wasn't a big campaign. It wasn't like you had lots of volunteers and stuff. No, no, no. I mean, part of my job was going out and recruiting people and training people and and letting them know why this is important. personal with uh, trying to shape. I've always been fascinated with working in a campaign and maybe because my best TV show is West Wing (laughs) and I love West Wing. I think that's the best thing I've ever come out of TV. And I wanted to actually see how people run for office, especially people that have got ideas and values and they want to make an impact and all the ups and downs and the ruffle and tumble of politics. And I was there for you, especially in Chicago, which is one of the most notorious places to do politics (laughs) in in the States. It was exciting because you actually, you realize very quickly that it is not sexy. It is not exciting. It is mundane. And the mundane uh, practical things are the things that help you win. Every single weekend, we were out knocking on doors, right? You do the data and analytics and you say, okay, this is the number of voters that I need to secure. This is where I think these voters might live. Now I need to talk to as many of these people as I can. And every single day you check and see, okay, how many people have I talked to? Where else do I need to talk to them? Who's decided? Who said yes? Who said no? Who's undecided? Who do I need to follow up with the call, right? It is very, very, very methodical. But that's not scalable. You're talking to thousands and thousands of people. It is scalable. It is scalable because that's why digital, and that's why I think digital has become so important in politics. Okay. It's the micro-targeting. But you have to get that data and you, and have, you have to, to understand. And knock on doors. Yeah, you have to go out and talk to people, which I, I th- it's something, of course, that I apply in business now is sometimes you can be behind your laptop all the time and you think you know what's happening. But in politics, you go and knock on people's door and it's scary to go talk to strangers. They can be your neighbors, but they're still strangers and put yourself out there. But most of the time, people are honest, they're straightforward, and you actually hear things that you never knew was possible. So a lot of time knocking on doors, which isn't glamorous, a lot of time talking to volunteers, recruiting them, a lot of time going to events and talking to people and really just understanding what people are thinking and how you can better serve them. So it was a really exciting process. And after that, went and worked on a bunch of campaigns. But weirdly enough, all the candidates that I worked for that were women, they won their campaigns, whereas all the men that I worked for did not win. Oh, so you did so, a bit of career helping people yes, and work 
working in politics? Well, I think I ended up working in about five or six campaigns. Interesting. And what was it basically you were doing in those campaigns? Typically, you start out with field, right? Field, that's the going on and talking to people. That's recruiting and training volunteers. That's collating data. And then I realized that I was pretty good around the communications part. So the writing element of it, as well as the data part. So you write and you create something and then you want to test and see how people respond to it. And then you continue to tweak and evaluate what you've done to hopefully convince more people. And so you moved from politics very early on in your career to business, to working for McKinsey and coming to Africa. That is a big shift. People who are passionate about politics at that young age will want to go on and do more stuff because you see more problems to solve. You see more challenges that you want to tackle. You see bigger pictures and you really want to be part of the Why did you just shift from politics, not just move career, but you now move continent? Yeah, so I was in graduate school at the time and I was in policy school. And so most people who enter politics are passionate about some kind of issue. Uh, the reason why they enter into politics or something they want to change in their community. And for me, that was affordable housing. That was real estate development, making sure that urban cities were welcoming to all people, not just the wealthy, especially when job opportunities, transit and healthy food are typically located in urban centers. So I was in public policy school and I wanted to apply for a real estate job working with a big real estate firm. And a lot of them were like, you're not qualified. I said, what are you talking about? I'm very qualified. And they're like, oh, no, we need people who come from business school. I'm like, But I have the exact same skills and I'm taking the exact same classes. And they're like, no, we only take finance people. I said, okay, well, that sucks. And then at the same time, some of my classmates were talking about doing a joint degree with the business school and looking at opportunities there. And I think the final element was during orientation, it put you into different groups with people. And there was this one guy who was really smart. And I just liked the way he approached issues. And he was very succinct in the way he communicated. And he was very structured. I said, okay, I like the way this guy approaches issues. I would like to be as good at communicating and problem solving. Supposed your cohort, your class that you Yes, he was in my cohort in public policy school, graduate school. And then I asked him, you know, I got to know him a bit better. And there were two things about him. One, he was doing the joint degree with the business school. And secondly, he was a consultant. He was a consultant at Bain. But I said, okay, well, one of these two things must be, or maybe it's both that might be what's helpful. So I ended up studying for the exam to get into business school. And I applied in the last round and I got in. And so that was really exciting. And then once I got into business school, I just realized there were so many more opportunities that I'd never even seen before. I'd never heard of a hedge fund before. I'd never heard about all these different corporate roles that exist out there. And my classmates were coming from these big banks, these big consulting firms, these corporate opportunities. They were taking vacations in countries I didn't know existed. Like their lives were so different. I realized, of course, and while I enjoyed politics, politics wasn't, it's not politics for politics sake. So it opened your horizon to bigger opportunities. Absolutely. So I think that's one thing about education, right? So while the education in many ways is a bit traditional education, can be a bit faulty and, and there are so many things that you can pick on it because education in the last maybe 200 years has always been it's not really changed it's always been optimizing people to become employees right so a lot of entrepreneurs that have done well would look at the trend most of them maybe went against the, the trend and bucked the trend of going through the normal traditional education and, and it led to some of some of the narrative by other people that say okay you don't need to go to uni or you don't need to education for you to be successful but having said that I think there is something that education people 
people don't know, which gives you opportunities. It just opens your eyes into a lot of more opportunities than you can ever think of on your own. And a good education will also make you to think why, to think critically, to question things, to be curious. And for you, you, you have almost like a very good career that a lot of people are always looking forward to. And then you went to business school and you saw, wow, there are more things that I can do than this. Is that a reflection of what happened? You were looking to run for office. Yeah, I was I was going to run for office when I was still in policy school. And then once I got to business school and just saw that there were so many more options and there were other things that I could do that could still be helpful and could still be impactful in my community. I said, OK, well, I'm willing to try something Which else. Which party were you affiliated to? I was a Democrat. Yeah. The I standard. I, I mean, yeah, that's, not, yeah. that's not surprising. Yeah. So what would you have run for if you're in Chicago? No, I would have run. Uh, my family lives outside of Washington, D.C. OK. So I would have run for county council. In, in Washington, D.C. County in, Council. In Prince George's County, Maryland. And then you would have gone from that to maybe the States. Yes, stuff, and, and then, then maybe, who knows what could have happened. Maybe you could have a full 2000 and whatever. And then no, I would uh, never run for president. No, thank you. You don't know. No, I know that. Why? I would have never wanted to. Why? Okay, so one thing you learn about politics is that who actually controls things and who actually has power. The president is a fantastic role and it's very high profile. There are limitations to what can actually happen. And so if you're looking to impact certain areas, there are less well-known and less high-profile roles. You actually have a lot more ability to influence legislation, policies, decision-makers, where finances are put forward. There are different roles besides the glamorous ones. So Yeah, but the most glamorous one is the most influential and it's the one that can actually change the world economy by a single tweet. Yes, that's if you're worried about the world economy. But if you say that, you know, my main focus is, like I said, my main focus is working on affordable housing. Being president would not be the best place for me to do that. Not even being Secretary of Housing and Urban Development would be the best place to do that. You are either in charge of a zoning board or a zoning commission because they actually decide what goes where and how you can do it. I mean, if you look at Lucky, the Lucky Access, right? Whoever is deciding which shops get to go where, how this construction, they are actually influencing billions of Naira of investment. These people want to go where there are roads. They want to go where there's infrastructure. People want to live where it's going to be easy to get to and not a lot of traffic. So that person or that commission actually has a lot of power in terms of the future design of a city in a space. So low-key can also be good in terms of having impact. Impact. So let's mm-hmm. talk about impact that you're making out through Chile's Africa. I want to skip your role when you're working for McKinsey as a consultant and I really want to deep dive into what was the aha moment for you to start Chile's Africa. I understand the alternative narrative that you're trying to create for African women, but some other people would have said, that actually, why just focus on just women? Why not just let's make Africans to be big businesses or have good careers? What was the aha moment for you in starting Chile's Africa? Yeah, so I actually launched Chile's Africa in a previous iteration before I even moved to Nigeria. During business school, I spent a summer as an associate at Twin Pine, which is a mobile marketing company in Lagos. And I had a really great opportunity there, met a lot of smart young people and ultimately just wanted to better understand. Was that your first job in Nigeria or second after you came to McKinsey? No, it was my first one before I even came to McKinsey when I was still in graduate school. You came as an intern? Yes, so in 2012. affinity to Nigeria? No, that wasn't the case at all. I was an unserious person and typically in graduate school, you have your internship set by December. Because I was looking for these real estate jobs, which typically recruit later, I didn't have an internship and it was April and school was closing by June. So I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I don't have an internship. And I had heard about this program beforehand. So I decided to apply and they told me that, and of course I put Ghana first, what kind of Ghanaian would not put Ghana first. But by that time, because it was so late, they said all the slots in Ghana are taken up. If you want to join the program, the only place you can go is Nigeria. What was the program? It was African Markets 
internship program through the Tony Illuminate Foundation. Okay. They don't do it anymore, but they've done it for about two or three years back so in twenty twelve. Basically recruits students who want to do internship from top graduate schools in the US and link them up with businesses in Nigeria for about a few months. Yeah, so it was they had people in Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, and I think South Africa. So there were a couple of different markets where people went to. And so it was MBAs and MPPs, Master in Public Policies, and would work at startups and PE firms. So I didn't have a choice and I didn't have any internships. And you cannot have an internship if you're in graduate school. You will come back and be finished. So I said, well, this is my only chance. So I had to go. I didn't know any Nigerians. I like I had to get a visa and everything. It wasn't like I was just ready to go. Didn't know anybody here. They put us all in a house. It was not as exciting as Big Brother at all. Uh, we were just there. And, you know, I made friends and I realized I liked the place. But that was my first time being here. But when you're in business school, there's a lot of attention spent on you getting a job, on you being prepared for the workforce. There's no assumption that you just know how to go into it. There's a whole department, career services, and that's actually how they rank and evaluate the success of a business school is how easy it is for people to get a job and how well they, you know, how long they stay in that job, how well they perform. And so when I was in Lagos for that summer, I was asking people and I was just talking to people, like, how do you actually know how to be in this job, like in this workforce? How do you know how to operate in this environment? Because it's foreign to everybody, right? Working in this corporate space is not natural when you're new. And many of the people that I spoke to, especially the young women, just said, well, you have to figure it out or you hope that you have someone who's going to look out for you, a mentor, advisor, a godfather, et cetera, who's going to manage you as you're going through the career. And for me, I've never had kind of any special access, things like that. And I just said, you know, that's pretty hard. If you don't have someone looking out for you, if you don't have anyone giving you favors, then you're just out here trying to figure it out. So when I went back to business school, decided to test out the concept and it was just focused on women in corporate spaces, actually. Right. I was in business school. I thought I was going to enter into the corporate space. And it was the initial, like, you know, the version one of Africa. Africa. It was and not that, called Chile. Was focused yeah. on women there Yeah, well. I was still focused on women in Africa and focused on corporate. Kind yeah. Of career. Yeah. The corporate space. And the question about why focus on women, my background, right, the work I'd done in politics had always been focused on women. And secondly, any good business person will choose a niche. So I don't want people to ask me that question. I'm just like, my friend, if you want to work on men, have fun. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to stop you, but I just know that in terms of the value that I can deliver, I can do it exceptionally to women. And maybe if I was focused on everyone, we couldn't be as good. I just know that what I'm doing right now works. So tried it out. We did an event in Ghana. We had an online platform, but it was really hard because it was just me and I was recruiting people to work with me, but it just we hadn't figured out a way to make it click. I didn't get into a business school competition, got some feedback, but ultimately just it kind of died. I was like, I don't have time and it wasn't working. I got an offer to join McKinsey and move to Lagos full time. So decided to just focus on that and leave this to the side. So it's always been there. So it's something that you really wanted to do. And then the first version, you tested it and it didn't work. You went to McKinsey and then the opportunity presents itself again in a different way. Yeah, I was a better business person. I was a better manager. I had a better understanding and awareness of what was happening. And during my summer in business school, I was going to Mobile Mondays and going to all the tech events. And there was always so many men. I was like, oh man. And I was just by myself at these things. And so after, you know, let's say two more years in the ecosystem and paying attention and seeing how everyone has a side hustle, I said, maybe the startup in the entrepreneur space might be a better one angle to start with. And so, and I'd already been at McKinsey for some time. So I said, okay, I know how to do this job. Okay. And so maybe it might be time to actually pick up an extracurricular or a side project myself. And that's where the version two of SLA came about. And then was grateful to find a partner in the form of another McKinsey consultant. So that was serendipitous. Um, And she also was interested in doing something and asked me, like, if you know of anything, let me know. I was volunteering at an event for women, a conference, because I like to volunteer. So she was there. She said, if you know of anything, 
anything. I know a lot of people in the situation, they keep their mouth shut. They don't want anyone to steal their idea. They're like, oh, no, this is my thing. I was looking for anyone who could help. So I said, no, I have this thing. I want to do a competition. You know, if you're interested, let me know. And she was interested and followed up with me. And, and I think so that's I started. the key thing. That's, the, that's always been the story of most startups. And a lot of people, I mean, maybe traditional business people say, keep your idea to yourself. And then tell people because they're going to steal it. Actually, the best startup are the ones that are always sharing their ideas because you get your things like you. You can get a co-founder. Somebody will say, I like what you're talking about. I want to be part of it. This is what I can bring to the table. Or you can actually get people who help you refine your idea because they question it at that early stage. And of course, you don't want to go to people that will kill it because of their cynicism and, and, and stuff. But you want to go to people that can help you refine it and question some of your hypotheses and help you shape it. Because that's been my story. Every business I've done has always been started with an idea and I start talking to friends and then they question it. And I will start with, hey, and then by the time I speak to about 10 friends to end up being something that I can actually execute on. So that was your story as well, right? And that's a good yeah. thing for a lot of entrepreneurs to always talk. Yeah, I mean, because of course you have nothing at that point. There, there were no assets. Like I bought a domain name and I set up a Google form, but it's like, what is someone actually going to steal? Nothing. So it just worked out really well. And we were able to turn that concept around very quickly. And so this was May 2014. I said, let's do it in August. The husband was like, let's do it in December. We agreed on September. But we weren't going to spend six months months or a year trying to figure this out. If we're going to do it, we said, let's just do it. And we spent three months. What was the initial thing? What was the MVP for Shilis Africa? It was a pitch competition for women who wanted to build scalable businesses. Because every time you go to an event, they're like, oh, there's no women. We can't find the women. And we're like, okay, fine. So we said, let's just see if we can find some of them. And if there's something unique that we can bring to the table that will uncover all these women. Because we had a hypothesis was that there are women who are interested in building big businesses or having successful careers. We just need to do a better job in speaking and communicating with them and providing them services that they care about. So within six weeks of applications, we had more than 400 entries from 25 plus countries. What were you offering them? We said $10,000 media attention and access to investors in a trip to Nigeria. We did not have the $10,000. We did not have the media. We did not have the investors and we were hopeful people would give visas to Nigeria. So we didn't oh, have anything. you targeting people outside, outside Nigeria? No, no, no. It was Pan-African. So we had people from South Africa, Kenya, Ghana, Morocco, and some diaspora people. But we didn't want it to just be Nigeria only. So you don't have all the money and you were pitching that to people that if you, if you win, you're going to get get to it. So how did you figure that out? How did you pay them at the end? Well, it was simultaneous, right? Because part of it is we had to demonstrate that there was demand for this. So we had to use that as a data collection point. But then also by using that data, we then would take it to potential partners and sponsors to say, I look at all this demand and clearly there's a market that's interested in this. This is why you should work with us. At the end of the day, we were able to secure partners like GT Bank and Huawei and Forbes Women, but it was a lot of just street hustling and How sitting in people's offices. Oh, okay. Before this podcast, we were talking about uh, one of my weaknesses in trying called to get begging. People. It's not begging, it's strategic communications. So how do you, tell me, <laughs> through how you get corporates to support or partner with a tiny little startup? Yeah, so I think I've actually written an article about this on our website because we get this question quite often and before you go and talk to anybody I think the first three or four steps are all about thinking and research and one of the major challenges is that people make assumptions about what someone else cares about or they assume that people should care about them just because no I care about women in business but that doesn't mean anybody else should care about it and it's not by force that someone will care about it so the first thing is really being honest and evaluating the landscape and saying who potentially could derive value from what it is that I'm creating that requires you to do an honest analysis about what you can bring to the table and then secondly, requires you to do research, in-depth research, 
research online, talking to people, looking at press releases, looking at annual reports. I think who has mentioned that this might be a priority for them, either from a marketing perspective, from a lead generation perspective, from a data analytics, from a CSR, from whatever. You can decide what's important to you and your brand. So you do the analysis about yourself. That's step one. Step two is doing the research and looking at the landscape and thinking about who might value you. Step three is coming up with a compelling and simple proposal that says, this is what we can bring to the table. This is exactly what we can offer your brand. This is how we will offer it. And this is how we'll measure success. That's to be some mechanism to say whether or not this actually worked. We get proposals all the time and people are like, oh, can you just sponsor us, sponsor our lunch? And I'm like, for what? Why should I care? There has to be that so what factor there. And then the fourth step would be finding the right lead. We spend a lot of time creeping on LinkedIn, a lot of time asking for referrals um, and so that you can try and reach the right person. And if you find one contact in the organization, that's great, but you should find five so that you're reaching and hitting people and hopefully one of them will be responsive. But understanding what your response rate might be. So if we send a message out to 10 people, maybe one person might get back to us. And that's okay because it takes time. An initial to do that. email or initial contact is not about sponsoring days. It could be, can I, can I have a chat with you about X, Y, and Z that you're doing and how I can be of help to you? Yeah, you got to just tell the story and use that as an opportunity to learn what they care about. Because even all your research and analysis might show you one thing, but they might say, well, actually, we really want to know this kind of thing. Can you help us with that? And understanding that you're providing a service to someone else. You're getting something from them, but you also need to give them something as well. So that is what, that's what we did. And sometimes you do it for no money. So the first year, we just wanted the Forbes woman name on on there so that we would look like serious people. And hopefully we get some coverage for the entrepreneurs there. And so we are like, Forbes, we don't want any money, but this is our, these are our two asks. And they said, fine, this is simple. Because not every time money, sometimes it can be exposure, sometimes it can be credibility, sometimes it can be feedback. You never know. And the idea is that you build a relationship with people. There are people that we've been begging since 2015 and just last week they said oh we finally ready to work with you. And you're like, oh. That's interesting. So the, the lead could be that long. I mean, yeah, the- I mean, it sucks, but it can take time. It can definitely take time. So how did you get that first $10,000 that you gave to the first people that came to your competition? Yeah, thankfully we used personal connections, but then we also, once you get a personal intro, that person doesn't have to do anything for the, for you. All they will do is take the meeting with you. So we were able to position it and we found brands who had already said they cared about entrepreneurship. They already had some track record of helping either women in tech or women in business. And we said that this is a way for you to combine all of the things that you said that you care about. And in the grand scheme of things, right, if a, if a sponsor is paying millions of Naira, hundreds of millions of Naira for a concert, and you're saying, here's a very small thing that you can do, requires very little effort. And you probably don't even have to get your boss's approval then it's easy for them to say to say yes on. But then we had to also do our work to deliver on it, right? So all the important people or all the relevant people we thought we needed to get into the room, we made sure that we reached out to them and we invited them and we positioned it in a way that would be value adding to them. And then at the end of the day, we also had to say that if push comes to shove, we'll spend our own money on it, right? Because we need to invest and demonstrate that we're willing to invest our own resources to get this going. And so sponsor and no sponsor, we have to put on a quality event. So you you, you did, did you have an, uh, any time that you have to spend your own money because sponsors' money didn't come on top? Well, we had to put our sponsors, our own money down first and then recruit some of it. But because, well, back then we weren't starting a business, but anytime you're starting a business, sometimes you put it down and you hope the business will pay you back. It's a bit like what we run. did at, with Agro Africa Summit as well. We have 
that with our money to deliver that kind of quality event and we're just becoming quite good now and then we got some sponsors money but then we had to actually initially just put our money there and just make it work and, and do quality event whether we have sponsored money or not so let's talk about what you've been in Africa a lot of people have different views about what it is uh, you accelerator program you have women you shout about women you let you help women that want to build big businesses but I've had a conversation with you before and when you told me actually there are, there's more to it than all of that it's not just business even though that's what a lot of people would have interacted with you on tell me what is it that you do and what are the values that Shilis Africa is actually creating yeah Shilis Africa is a digital media platform for smart and ambitious young African women we want to help young African women live their best professional lives whether that is building a business growing in their career find a successful balance between all their passions, we want to support them. When we look out into the media landscape, there's a lot of content related to fashion, a lot of stuff related to entertainment. Celebrities are everywhere, food. But if you are a young person, you're spending 10 to 12 hours a day focused on work. And why is it that there isn't information and resources and support focused on that very important area of your life? So that's the gap that we are looking to fill. And we're doing that through our digital content and through our experiences. And ultimately, we want to be able to share this information in a relevant way to our audience. So business and career and learning doesn't have to be boring. It can connect with you the same way any other type of interesting content would. And our goal is just to help people build the skills that they need to be successful, however they choose to define it. So and what are the key services or stuff that you do? I know you do the accelerator program. You also do your profile women you also do the actually that's that, those are the two things that i know actually the accelerator program that you take to different cities i think you had a festival recently as well so what are the other key things that you do to actually pursue that vision that, that you just articulated now yeah so our goal of course is to reach millions of women and we know that we need to connect to them where they are in different ways so we do that primarily through digital and through experiences digital digital and experiences yeah so digital you can find us our website chilisafrica.org social media newsletter YouTube, right? How do we just tell interesting stories and share information and advice? So there's content from experts. So every single week we're doing a Facebook live chat or Instagram Q&A or a Twitter chat or a webinar where you can speak directly to experts all across the globe to ask them your questions on important topics. And these topics can range from setting up a budget, looking at investment opportunities, using Instagram and Facebook to grow your business, you know, how to create a healthy lifestyle, right? To really cover the entire gamut. We also have downloadable guides and worksheets to allow you to work on it at home and really get and into secret topics. For, for, yes, for, for everyone to get it into. is. It is. Then our social medias are really inspiring. They're funny. They're encouraging. So if you want to just laugh at what's happening at your, you know, when your boss does something crazy or funny, or you want to talk to other people about what's happening, you can find that there. Um, so that's why digital is really important. It's allowing us to reach people all across the globe, wherever they are. Our experiences enable us to connect with people one on one in person because we know that community and networking is really important. We do that through our Shihai boot camps, which we've hosted in almost 10 cities and across three continents so far. And those are four-day learning and networking experiences. Um, and we're excited to be doing that this year. We've already done Kaduna. We've done Johannesburg, Cape Town. Washington, D.C. is coming up. Toronto, Canada is coming up. London, Nairobi, Lagos. Who knows where else we're going? And, and African women in those places or yes. women or generally? Women in general. So in I mean, last year in our New York event, we had someone come from the British Virgin Islands to come and join us. 
in our Nairobi event, we had an African-American woman who was living in Dubai who flew to Nairobi to come. So we're seeing that these experiences are reaching people beyond just African women, women of the diaspora, women who want to connect with this market are also welcome to join us as well. Then we've had our festival, which is a large scale event. And really it's about focusing on innovation, culture, technology in a fun and interesting way. So we held that in Lagos. We had about 1500 women come out. And so we look forward to having that grow and scale as we move forward. And then finally, we have our accelerated program, which is like our legacy program, which we first started in 2014, which allows us to work with a small group of women to help so them grow and scale their different business. different from a program. Yes. They happen at the same time sometimes. Because the first time I, that was 2015, mm-hmm. that I spoke at your event. Well, there was an accelerator program as well as Shiive. Yes. There was a demo day. Yes. And then I spoke at the Shiive. Yes. Okay. So Shiives happen in different cities. So sometimes we will do like the Lagos Shihive at the same time as we're doing something else so that everyone can benefit from those learning opportunities. But, you know, the accelerator is a three, four month program. So we'll be doing Shihive simultaneously in other markets if we're not doing an accelerator there as well. So do you find um, the, the physical event more impactful in terms of the, the, the way you can reach out to people and, and, and help them with your, with your narrative and also help them with what you're doing? Do you find that more impactful than content online? No, not at all. I believe that people learn differently and people can access things however, in their own unique way. So there's a young woman who came to an event last year and she ran up on me and was like, oh my gosh, I need to talk to you. So I was very nervous that she was going to yell at me because whenever you do an event, people now want to give all their feedback and tell you all the reasons why they don't like you. So I was very nervous. But she's like, oh my gosh, I love SLA. I said, okay, now I'm interested. She's like, I live out, I can't, I think she lived in Benin. She said, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I have two kids and I was just feeling really depressed and lonely just there by myself. My husband is out working, but I found your Facebook page and I was reading the articles. I was seeing what you guys are talking about. I was getting encouraged and inspired. And I got an idea to start my own business that I could run from home. And now I'm making, you know, millions of Naira every single month just from what I learned from the Facebook page. And then I decided to come to your in-person event and to meet you guys and see what it's like in person. So that's exactly what we want to happen. We know that there's a funnel and there's a process. So maybe someone first finds out about us from Instagram and they're encouraged and they like the stories and they're picking up what they can and they're going to the website and they're learning more. Um, But it's at their own pace and it's how they choose to engage with it. Then they come to an event and they're able to make connections. Either they find a mentor, they find a business partner, or they're inspired and they get a new idea. And then some people will decide to grow a business and get to that next level and they connect with us through our accelerator. But we don't think there's one way that we can support and work with women in our community. People will reach it however they can. And of course, there are some cities which we may not be able to reach. We're a small team. We can't get to everywhere. To still being able to deliver the content and that information and those digital events to people who live all across the globe is really important and impactful for us as well. So we, we find that as well as starter that a lot of people, some people would have been reading my email for months and then we do an event and they will come and I say, the reason why I came to your event is because I've been reading your email for quite a number of times. So we had dinner in Abuja last week and a guy actually drove, um, took the bus all the way from Kaduna, which is about two hours, 
Tabuja just to meet me and meet us because he's been reading our email for a long time. I think one of the other ones that was, that, that was humbling for me and that when last time we did this, I also put camp in Lagos. Uh, a lady flew all the way from France. She actually, we actually had to get a visa to come for the, for the boot camp and all because she's been interacting with us online. But I, I also think that, I mean, I could, like, for example, starter, what, 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 she leads Africa. I felt if you're doing it in the UK or US, you could actually do everything online, right? You could just do your membership and everything online and, and only have maybe one year, one, uh, a yearly summit where people come together. So I was wondering whether in-person event in Africa is much more impactful, maybe because of the data, expensive data, internet, or, or the culture of actually meeting with people and, and, and having conversation rather than just reading stuff on your own. Yeah, I think it could be cultural. I think there's also socialization. So I think women are socialized to come together, to talk, to connect, and they enjoy doing that. So and then finally, building a business is a very lonely endeavor. Trying, like if you're the only woman in your field or in your company that's trying to pursue something else, it can be very lonely. And you want to just be in a space where you can ask questions and not feel dumb, or you can get advice from someone else who's been there before. So the in-person experiences provide that safe space and that open opportunity to do so. And we found them. we've done events in New York, we've done events in D.C., we're looking forward to doing more events and we've done events in London. The w- women there are the same. They're just, they're also excited to connect in person. So while I think digital may be more popular in those other markets, the experiences are still useful to bring people together and to cement kind of what they've learned and what they're connecting with online. So what's the big picture for Chile's Africa? Yeah, our goal is to become the number one destination for smart young African women. If a young woman is in Cairo, or Kampala, or Durban, or Kaduna, and she thinks about, oh, how do I put together my CV, or how do I find an investor, or what is cash flow? The first place and the best place she turns to is She Leads Africa. So what's your revenue model? Yeah, so we, we look at who cares about the products and services that we're creating, and we attempt to deliver value or connect them to that. So our community is really important to us and we try to offer as many things for free as possible. But we do believe that we're providing a service and people should put some kind of money down or something down so that there's some seriousness there and that people are investing in themselves and they're investing in their personal development. So when we host events, we try to charge a very nominal fee. But so the it's still affordable. Not cover your costs. So how do you then cover the rest? And make- I'm going one by one, okay. right? One by one. But I start with community because that is the most important thing to us. If we were doing events and people didn't see value in it, or they were just coming just because, then that wouldn't be sustainable. But like we know that. Way, I like the way your accent changed when you were saying I'm going one by one. That was like a Nigerian accent. <laughs> I never. Like I will never have a Nigerian accent. You do Good have for those who that. have it, but... That is, that's okay, not my like lifestyle. When, when you get serious, you say, I'm going Wait. one by one. Okay, fine. Okay, go on. <laughs> so community is always important to us, always important. And so every single event, we know, okay, this is the number of tickets that we want to sell. And that lets us know that we're on the right track. Secondly, we look at brands who are looking to connect to our community from a marketing perspective. We, we are building an audience of very powerful, connected, smart young women who are influencers, who are consumers, who are leaders 
in the market. So there are brands who say, these are the kind of women that we want to connect with. We want to learn and understand them. And we want to position our products to them in an authentic way. So running marketing campaigns and things like that. Thirdly, there is a lot of data and research that people want to know. You know, What are people thinking? How do people view this product? What is out there in the market? So running uh, data surveys or research programs for not just big brands, but also government programs or community programs. You know, there is a fund out there that wants to get more women to take out or apply for funding and they want to know why are the numbers so low. Then SLA can go out there and ask our community, why didn't you apply for this program? What's this issue? How can they improve their services so that you're more likely to do that? So that's really important. And then the final one would be CSR campaigns. So they're, we're doing trainings you know, on digital marketing for Facebook because that's important to them and that's part of their give back strategy. So we're able to help execute that on their behalf. So if a company or a brand is looking for a giving program, they could work with us to execute that as well. So those are the, the ways in which you're building your revenue, does, um, leveraging your community that you built to then uh, provide service and values to people that want to engage with that community. Yes, but authenticity is key. So there are some brands or some services that we would never talk about because like, this has nothing to do with us. So if we believe it's adding value and people can learn from it. So if we're working with a financial institution. No, teach us how we can be better with our money. It's not just about open up the savings account. What are the different things that we can look, we should be looking at when we're comparing interest rates? What type of different savings accounts should we be pursuing and how do we ask the right questions? So there's always a learning and a development part of everything we do. How big is the community now? Right now we're reaching around 300,000 people. So you have 300,000 people in your email list or... Or in various data that you've got? In various data that we have. So, of course, email is important, but we also have like video subscribers, people who get direct access to our videos, um, people who are following us or getting messages on Facebook and communicating with that with us that way. Um, and then we also have different WhatsApp groups in different cities that we work in as well. Wow, that's interesting. So 300,000, that's a lot. That's that's good. There are millions of women out there that we yeah, need to yeah, reach, we so we have work to one do. One time you, you have this goal of one, a million women, and that's very good. But 300,000 is a good landmark, to actually, to, to be engaging, especially when it's a niche. Because people used to move away from niche because they think it's small. But I think niche is where the money is. The, the nature you are, the better. If you, can, if you can build a tribe, then you can build different communities around that tribe. But really impressive with the 300,000. So. The big vision is to be able to be the number one platform for women in Africa when they're thinking about business or, building or growing their career. And then, and then your business model will continue that way. So what I really want to know is what are the comparable platforms that you are looking at? I understand you might say we're just one of a kind, but I want to <laughs> understand the comparable platform, maybe in other markets that you, that you see yourself as, okay, this is the kind of a true note that we want to actually benchmark ourselves against. Yeah. So in the U.S., there are two that we look at quite often. One is called Levo League. The second one is called The Muse. And they're both actually very funny. They were both started by former McKinsey women as well. And they're looking at business and careers for millennials because we know they know that it's a different approach when you're looking at what am I going to do with my life? How do I figure that out? The Muse is approaching it more from a career and a job search perspective, whereas Level League is approaching it more from a community 
and lifestyle perspective, but there's something to learn from both sides. Daily Muse went through Y Combinator, raised significant funding, Label League raised funding from the likes of Sheryl Sandberg and such. So it's also good models for us. Are you raising money as well or you're not? Not at this time. Because it's really important. We know that when you're coming from Africa, you have to show before you tell. So we want to make sure that we are building a company that is sustainable, that is generating revenue so have that people can see. Have you raised money in the past? No, we haven't. So you've been self-sustaining. For, yes. You bootstrapped this for a long, long time. Yes. With your own money, of course. Are you profitable? Yes. And so then there are a couple of companies in India as well that are focused on, and they've both, both of the models that we look at went through 500 startups. So we can see that there's inter, international interest in brands and platforms like this, whether they're approaching the career element or the business element, but they're all doing it through media because of the power of media, the power to tell stories and the power to connect people. Um, so there are proxies that we're looking at across the market, across different markets to help us learn and take inspiration, but also see how do we, of course, grow and scale it as well. I've got one more last question before I go into the fire round. And it's about you know, a, a co-founder and working with your co-founder. Was, and you asked me a matter. She's brilliant, smart lady. And it would be good to actually discuss how impact, how helpful that has been having a co-founder and the importance of having a co-founder. Because you have this idea, you tested it initially, and then you have a co-founder. And I also want to talk about when your co-founder went to, the, to business school and how how that how that works in terms of you running and 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 the, and the pressure of delivering. So let's talk initially about the importance of having a co-founder and how that how impactful that was for you. Yeah. So for both of us, I don't know. We couldn't run this business independently. It's very 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 challenging to do, and especially the scale that we're trying to take it to. It'd be hard. It'd be frustrating. And sometimes you do need someone to tell you, "Do not send that angry email." You need someone to say, um, I'm not sure. Or you just need someone to support you and be like, that's right. I would have done the exact same thing. And so it can be very helpful. And just in terms of balancing the work and just having someone to speak to. And we are much better when we're working kind of together and in sync than independently. So I encourage everyone to do it, to find someone to work with. Or if you have a team, that's fantastic. And if you don't have a co-founder, maybe finding someone very close to you, it could be your, your spouse or your partner, maybe a close family friend, because it cannot just all be in your head. Right? You have to, in order to keep yourself sane, you have to have some perspective and having someone else to work with can provide you with great perspective. And then there are some days where I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not on it. Can you take this? I don't want to do this. Can you do it for me? And it's fantastic to have someone to work with like that. And because we both came from the same company, our working styles are very similar. So if she says she's going to get something done, I can trust and believe her quality of work that she's going to get it done. And it's the same on her side. So that gives us great comfort to know that, you know, you can be frustrated at your staff. You can be frustrated at potential partners. You can be. You have confidence in your co-founder. Yes, you have confidence that if this is a task that we've decided that we will do, it will get done. And the same level of passion as well. Yes, indeed. Yes. So how, what was the impact when she went to the, to the business school and how did that affect the, the, the pressure and the dynamics of the business? Yeah. So the, she actually had left the consulting firm before I did. So there was a period in which she was not working and I was still working. So, you know, I was not always as available as she was. And now it's just flipped. 
Whereas let's say I'm doing full time and she has something else, but she still works hard. Like I wake up to emails from her and there are calls and, you know, we just adjust our team calls or our structures to fit, you know, so she'll be up at 6am so that she can be at the same time, be up at the same time as Lagos time. But it's just a balance and it's just something that you go through. And if you decide that you're going to run a business for the foreseeable future, let's assume that this is going to be the next seven to 10 years of our lives. There will always be things that happen. Like what if one of us would have gotten pregnant? That's the same thing, right? Like life happens. Life happens, yeah. Yeah. And so we can't say, oh no, this is just all that we have going on. Like, no, we have other things happening. And again, that's what you're trying to teach your community about. Yeah. Not, I don't want to use the word work-life balance, but living your life and also being the best at whatever you do. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. And so, I mean, there's also great value because, you know, when you're in school, you're meeting people. When you're a student, you're allowed to call people and they'll actually return your calls. So it's been helpful as well that she's been able to get us access to great resources. So um, it's exciting. Two years down, we have still two years to go, but I mean, the work will continue. Two years to go for in, in our studies. Yes. Well, she's doing two different degrees. So, but it, so far, nothing, there's never been any point where it's like, oh no, this thing has ruined the business. Not at all. That's quite good. What is your biggest business pain point? Talent. You can only grow, especially for us, because we're a very people intensive business. Uh, you can only grow as fast as you have good people that you can trust. So always recruiting. We are always recruiting. Always recruiting. And is that, you, I know talent has been an issue for a lot of people. Is that unique to the fact that you could get enough talent in, in Africa? Or it, it could have been the same if you're building Chile's Africa. No, in- we could have lots of foreigners working for us. We actually get a lot of people from other markets who apply, but that's not the kind of business that we want to build. We want to build business that is reflective of the audience that we're trying to reach. So there is a, a challenge about local talent and it's hard because everyone, there are a couple of things. One, everyone must be a boss and we're like, ah, relax. And two, uh, some people, like if you have something small, like saying, okay, if you join the plat- our platform, we could just give you so much greater reach and scale and opportunities, but people want to go it alone and we're like, fine, have fun with that. And then of course, oh, there's just- people that want to build something similar to yours. Yes. Or they have a good skill set, which we believe that if they joined us, that skill set could be amplified and they get more opportunities. And so that has been a challenge as well. But then finally, just, when you're a young person, and I'm actually the oldest person that works for the company at my ripe old age of 30. So let's say everyone is 23, 24, 25, 26, whatever. Very few people have had actual responsibility, right? Like if you get out of school, you just are working, doing paperwork, or someone else ultimately is responsible for getting something done. But that's not how it works at our company. You're 23, I don't care, do your work, right? And so that adjustment of being responsible for delivering can be very challenging. Some people are up for it. So we have a bonus and a commission structure. So if you bring in business or you or your KPIs are better, then you will earn more. And we've had some people say, well, I don't like that kind of risk. And it's fine because it's not for everybody. So tell me about that bonus and commission structure. That's the first time I'm hearing that, and maybe in this context. So you have the basic salary and then you have, if you bring in Sponsors, or you? No, 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 no. So every single role, of course, I'm going. We're measuring your performance based on certain KPIs. So if you hit this KPI, then you could get, let's say, two percent 
commission on your department's profits. But if you hit this certain KPI, it could be 5%. If you hit so this, it could be 10%. Profit that you've, that you've got. Every, every department has got a profit. Yes. So every department has got a P&L. Yes. Which then means that we're putting managers, you know, we have a manager who's 25 and she's responsible for her P&L. And I'm saying, they show like, can we spend this? I'm like, I don't know. You tell me, can we spend it? And so part of my job as a manager is, and I want to build a company that is training people to be responsible and to be able to deliver. And so if someone leaves us in three years, she can go and deliver value and she knows how to look at her numbers and she knows how to adjust things to generate more revenue or decrease her cost because she's had that responsibility. But unfortunately, in a lot of companies and a lot of roles, if you're a young person or you're a junior, you don't get that kind of exposure. So it, some people are game for it. They, their mindset is ready, but some people are still very scared and they're nervous about whether or not they can deliver. So, How big is your team? Right now, we are at 10 people and we're always recruiting and hiring. So we hope to bring on at least about five more people within the next three months. And joining a um, more substantive role or interns? And All job. our roles are substantive. All, everyone has work to do. But no, these are full-time roles. Interns are totally separate full-time roles. So what is the number one growth metric that you measure at the moment? Right now, I measure email subscribers. That's really important because we know that we're building a community and our ability to tell our story is so much better than anyone else. Um, and we found that if a message comes from Yasmin or myself or a team member, people respond so much better than if they read about us somewhere else. So being able to speak one-on-one and actually get feedback. So people respond to our emails and they say, well, what about this? Or can I get advice on this? Or can you change that? And that's really important for us to improve our services. Uh, which book are you reading at the moment? I'm not reading... No, no, that's a lie. I am. So I, this year, I'm not reading a business book. So I get a lot of questions about business books. I don't read business books all my life. I'm like every single day I'm thinking about business. So that's not what I'm reading at night. But I have made a commitment this year to read books by African women authors. So every single time I'm in an airport, I pick up four or five books so I can read. So I'm reading this book by Chimamanda. It's not a famous one, but it's a collection of short stories. I can't remember the name of it, but I'm on the last short story. But that's what I read to kind of turn it off. Have you read Sefiata? No, what is that? Uh, Sefiata is a, a writer, I think. Um, yeah, she wrote, um, there's a book I'm reading now, I've forgotten the title of the book. It's about a, a girl uh, that grew up in Lagos in the 60s, uh, secondary school, and just paint a very good picture of Lagos. I think I've got to that place where our friend was raped something and it, it was coming from our own perspective and, and, and the, the girl is quite a beautiful book actually yeah. one of the reasons why I really like fiction books especially fiction books that are based in Africa is because I want to understand stories and I want to understand where people are coming from so I've read a couple of books from authors from Zimbabwe and it's very useful to understand the history to the culture the experiences people have gone through so it gives you context we were hosting an event in Johannesburg and we had some people from coming from Zim and they were like, well, there are currency controls and as someone who lives in Nigeria, I understand it. Like there are currency controls and we can only pay this much per day. And if you were coming from someplace else, say you're coming from the US, you'd be like, oh no, that's not true. It's not possible. But I've read the books. I'm understanding what people are thinking about. I'm reading the blogs. So it's like, okay, how do I adjust my product and my service to better suit them? So I love, I'm really enjoying reading fiction books, especially those that are historical, that are cultural, that are just helping me understand 
why people are living the lives that they're living. Uh, it's interesting how fiction helps you to do to understand culture a, a lot. So I was watching, I really watched TV, but I was watching, and again, I don't watch Nollywood a lot, but I was watching uh, for about maybe f- 10 minutes yesterday uh, an Aosa movie. Uh, of, of course, it was subtitled because I can't speak Aosa, I don't understand Aosa, but I was just re- watching it for the cultural context. Even though we're in the same Nigeria, there are a few things that was happening there that was a little bit different for me. So this is getting to understand the, the, the Northern cultural context. So it's quite, actually, I think you're right about fiction helping you to put context to, to culture. Which business is getting you excited at the moment, apart from Chile's Africa? Hmm. Who is exciting? Well, I'm quite self-centered, so I spend a lot of time thinking about my own business. And I don't spend enough time thinking about other people because I'm so busy with my own. But there is a company recently that I was really impressed by. I like Paystack. So I'm a customer. We're a customer, and we like their service. And they're quite responsive. So whenever I see people doing good, I'm always really impressed, and I'm happy for them there. There are a couple of content-related businesses. So I've learned about a business that's trying to, the same way you can watch movies on a plane, they want to allow you to watch movies on an interstate bus, on a bus, sorry. I think I they're called them. Viva. I met them last week. I mean, last week in, in, Abuja. in Abuja. Yeah, Yeah, I think they're called Viva. But I like people who are trying to think about how do you just change things to the local context, I'm really interested in. And I think content is really important. I'm in a content business and... People want to be transported to a new world. They want to learn. They want to grow. They want to share. So however we can do that in creative ways, I think is super interesting. But I would have to get back to you on other ones because... You actually mentioned Paystack and Viva. That's those quite the, good. Yeah, That's, those are the two I'll give to. Thank you very much, Efua, for coming to this <laughs> uh, podcast. I hope you enjoyed. Yes, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.